Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and our guest today is Miriam Silverman, who just won a Tony earlier this year for her role in The Sign in Sydney, Brewstein's Window. And in full disclosure, we're releasing this episode here end of August, and I actually recorded with her beginning of July. I thought it was uh, very, very important to to talk with her as close to the Tony win as possible because I wanted to to be able to to capture that joy, the uh, the the excitement that she had coming off of that Tony win. So um, that's why we recorded so long ago, and obviously there's other things that have been released since then. But now finally releasing this episode with Miriam, and just an absolute joy to talk to. She just got such a, a, a oh. Like a grounded, she's grounded. She's got this this great head on her shoulders. She just understands the business and understands that it is a business, and just continues trucking. And gosh, I I can't say enough. I just had such a great time talking with her. So, you know what to do. Find me online, Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Facebook, all the places. Leave a rating, leave a review, tell your friends, and know everybody. I hope you enjoy this episode with Miriam Silverman. Today's guest is no stranger to stage and screen, having her literal birth televised live on Good Morning America some years ago. She made her Broadway debut in 2017 in Junk and has TV credits that include Bernice in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Fleischman in Tro- is in Trouble, and Dead Ringers on Amazon. She's also an acting coach and currently a theater professor at NYU Tisch School of the Arts. And she just won this little thing called a Tony Award for her portrayal of Mavis in the recent off and on Broadway revival of the Sydney, the, the Sydney and Sign Brewstein. The Sign and Sydney Brewstein's window alongside Rachel Brosnahan and Oscar Isaac. These two up-and-comers, check them out too. Miriam Silverman, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. Man, you are fresh <laughs> off of your Tony win. I remember I was in the it was in the media room uh, with uh, with all the other pool of very unenthusiastic reporters and news people. Like I I wanna I wanna paint this for for the the average person who's like it must be so great that moment you win a tony and you get to go up on stage and you give these great speech in front of like a thousand of your your closest friends and then you get whisked away to like outside the building sometimes sometimes now it's inside the building now like Dallas in the heights you take a car up to a 10 minute ride where i was with the other news outlets that were and then you go into this room where everyone's like been there since four o'clock it's 10 o'clock where everyone's tired and you're just like hey 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 who's got a question everyone's like i guess i do like walk me through that night because yeah let's just start there walk me through the tony win it was surreal and bizarre and like you know they they send you all this information in advance like if you win blah 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 
And I would like to assume that no normal sane person who has like a shred of modesty actually reads all of it. At least I didn't, because <laughs> it's like you're not gonna you're not gonna be like, oh yes, let me be prepared for all the steps that are gonna happen. Now maybe if I were like, you know, Victoria Clark or or, or Audrey McDonald or somebody who had done this a million times or uh, like everybody said was gonna win, I don't know. But I I did not read that information closely at all it I, the only thing i had read and really paid heed to was to have a uh, have a script in my hand that i was sort of told numerous times that i would go into a kind of well i went into a kind of fugue state really <laughs> and like just a blackout no idea what was going on so i was glad i had my little safety net of my script in my hand but I hadn't really read all the details of what happens. I had a vague idea that, yeah, you get taken off to do press for a while. But I really didn't know what it was going to be like. I, I, I did my speech. I get brought off stage. There's this amazing picture that Jenny Anderson, who's just one of the best photographers of theater the and in general. Jenny, Jenny had, took this amazing picture of me where there's like, kind of like, kind of like, empty Mountain Dew cans behind my head and some other like detritus and all this electrical equipment. And it's like, I'm in my five inch high heels holding my Tony, my adrenaline just like going berserk. Uh, and Kenny Leon and David coming along, like escorting me off. No idea really what had happened. And then you sort of get, I, I had to take tiny little baby steps because of my shoes and my dress. And I get brought into a, like the first reactions interview, which is mm. both great and like a little mean. It's like a little mean to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand the spirit of it. And, you know, if I win a Tony again someday, I'll be better prepared. But it's like, you, it's designed, I think, to catch you when you're in that moment of just deer in headlights, like, did that happen? And so anyway, I ill-prepared for that, even though I knew it was going to happen. I don't even know what I said. I haven't had the heart to go back and watch that interview because I'm too nervous about oh, what an idiot I might have sounded like. <laughs> I'm like, blah! Um, and then, yeah, you get put in a car. I got put in an Escalade and driven what I swear felt like 30 minutes. It was probably closer to 10, but it felt like an eternity. <laughs> and I got handed a bag. I got handed a bag with a bottle, a, like room temperature, meaning hot. It was a hot night. A bottle of Vivquico from the from the you know theater we made theater ring as a congratulations and a bottle of water and a phone charger which I incidentally didn't realize was nicely charged so of course like didn't use it that night even though my phone died but I didn't have my phone at that moment because of course when you're when you're well no I would have if I had known what I was in for but your name gets called and you like you bolt up and try to get to the stage in time to get your ninety second speech out. And uh, of course, left my purse and my phone and everything with my husband, and then didn't see any any of them or any of it again for hours. It felt like, <laughs> so, yeah. And then it's in the back of the car with my little bottle of water, desperately wanting someone to hand me a drink or something. I had it, you know, I, I almost wishing I'd had like a cocktail or sitting there waiting at the beginning of the ceremony. 
in a car took forever at one point and then just like sit in my and you know the everything is like going up and down like did that just happen did that just happen i don't know i'm alone in the back of a car did that happen did i win a tony where am i being taken it's where are we going we're you're, driving you're, forever so you're alone Washington there's not like a tony chauffeur oh, a, a tony no, rep in there no oh. there's like the driver and i almost i should have said hey i just want to tell me but i think he knew and like was unfazed about it uh at one point i did say are we almost there because it felt like we were in the car forever and he said yeah yeah just a few more minutes so finally after what felt like, like an interminable journey we get there to some random hotel yeah and i get brought upstairs and there i met by my publicist whose other client had one that she was there and then everything started to feel a little more normal. Like I got to hug Bonnie Milligan and mm. do a bunch of more pictures. And yes, by the time I got to the room where you were, everyone was just sort of like, and it was, you know, it's funny. I had done one of those big press rooms at the Tony Junket where I, maybe I had gotten in there earlier in the day. So it wasn't such a, um, wasn't it, the energy was more up but yes i felt like everybody was kind of done and i was like oh wow we're only like a third of the way into the ceremony <laughs> it's a different vibe it's a much different vibe because because at the at the press the meet the nominees junket it's yeah it's a bunch of people we're not there as long i was there at that one too and actually i was running camera when you talked to carrie butler um right okay yeah 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 for broadway podcast network so so we were there um but you remember it's like everyone's close all all close together there's nothing else you're trying to watch because part of what we like we're wanting we're wanting to watch the actual tony wards while they're happening while listening to people coming through for their speeches and it's it's weird it's weird but it's it's a night like i wouldn't I, i just love it it's such an energetic night but anyway, congratulations. It, it to tell <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I mean, the weirdest part, aside from being in the car by myself with like no, no way to like call my dad or call anybody was getting back to the Tonys and getting brought, ushered back inside and having no idea what had happened or how much I'd missed. Oh yeah. And so I remember like walking, I went out to go try to find my dad at one point cause he was sitting up in the balcony and, um, I walked by Amy Herzog and I was like, Hey, I was like, are they doing your soon fix? No, they already did it. I didn't win. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> like, I had no idea when won what at that point. Cause I missed like an hour of the ceremony, but you know, it was worth it. <laughs> it's, it's rough because even in, for those in, in musicals or anyone performing, sometimes right. you have to come and you have to schedule all of this press stuff around the changes of your costume because you have to change in or out of your costume right. to do your performance right. while because you might also be a presenter you might also be a nominee or like it's it's a mess so it's a scheduling yeah. nightmare but you won the tony where is it you sitting did. now um well i it's actually have you named at, it? oh no maybe i'll let my daughter do that okay, okay. she'll probably want that honor that's that's a good idea my Tony is actually not in my possession. I did get it back. It was that was also jarring that I got to take it home and then had to bring it back in the next day to have them send it away for engraving. But I did get it back. We closed our show a week ago Sunday. I got it back right before we closed. And then I think wanted to show it to my dad, so I brought it up to his apartment and. I was going somewhere where I didn't want to carry around the heavy Tony, so it's still there. So I haven't actually brought it back to my home yet, 
But when I do bring it to my home, which will happen this week, it's going to live on our piano. Nice. Nice, nice. Yeah. I, I, I love, I love the various places people put it. And Brandon Uranowitz in his, in his uh, uh, media room, or in his speech, and somebody asked about it in the media room too. They were like, I'm going to give this to my parents. This is for you. And then, because, uh, so his is probably going to live in his parents' house for a little while. But oh, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really funny how all that stuff happens. But let's back up because you were born on live TV. <laughs> And I'm sure you've told the story a million times, but when your mother uh, gave birth, it was because, I think this is hilarious, uh, it was because what GMA was doing a story or something was, be, your mom was yeah. being filmed because she was 35. And at that yeah. time it was, I put in air quotes, super old to have uh -huh. a baby. So yeah. we're like, look out, look how hard it is to have a baby at 35. Yeah, exactly. She was, she was having her first child, me, at 35. And yeah, it was considered like, yeah, scandalous and crazy and newsworthy, I guess. So they, she and they followed a small group of women in New York City around to their doctor's appointments and to their Lamaze classes. And I think, I don't actually know if it was more than my parents in the end who were the birth, my birth was filmed and then they had them on the show a week later. Um, my dad actually just dug out the VHS recording for me. I was going to ask if you had watched it. <laughs> I watched it when I was way too young. I think they showed it to me because I was curious. And then I'm like, I don't want to do that. Because I we got the unedited version. I'm sure they did not show the graphic version on national television. But, on, <laughs> uh, but the version that we have, as far as I can remember, showed a lot. Ugh. <laughs> Yeah, it's weird to see like your own birth. I don't think I would want to see that. Crazy, yeah. Let alone that part of my mom. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not so cool. But but then, I mean, did this? Um, I guess how did how did your parents get involved with this? Because I think it was reading your mom was like an activist or or super some random. Sort of, yeah, my mom yeah. was a public school teacher and an activist. Um, no, it was purely by chance that. OBGYN practice that she ended up at in New York City, that doctor was, I guess, well known and had been approached to ask to see if he wanted to ask some of his patients to volunteer. And my parents were like, sure. So that was the only connection. I think they got like free Lamaze classes out of it or something. I'm not sure, but. <laughs> oh, that's pretty cool, though. I mean, it's yeah. funny because my, my first son was born when my right before my wife turned 35. She was 34 at the time. Yeah, and and it was it was no big deal. Like now, same. Now that's exactly the same for me with my first. Yeah, it wasn't a big deal because times have changed. But that's fun. Yeah, yeah, and then so you're one of two. You have a brother, right? I have two brothers actually. Oh, two brothers. Yeah. Wait, so you have one brother, one brother who's an FDNY lieutenant. Yeah. Fire department, and then mm -hmm. I, I thought they were. I thought it was one brother who did both. One was a lieutenant, no. <laughs> and one is a poker player. But one is a poker yeah. player, and he, okay, you have yeah. two. Okay. Yeah. So you've got fire department. You've got pro poker player in the family, and then mm -hmm. Tony winner. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what my parents did. You know, they were my dad was a journalist, my mom was a teacher, but somehow the three of us ended up like. Real weirdos, but hey, you know. Listen, when my kids call each other weird, I'm like, that is a compliment. You, yeah, you take it, you I say thank so. you. Because I think weird weird is different and different is good. And I, I enjoy I it. I agree. 
So born and raised in New York City, mm-hmm. uh, product of New York City. Let's see, public schools. So then where, mm-hmm. where growing up, um, were you involved with the performing arts? Did you get into acting, theater, anything? Like, where did this all start? It's so funny how um, I've been sort of recreating this history recently because I've been asked to talk about it a lot. And I'm kind of, every time I talk about it, I remember a different um, element in the whole puzzle piece. But the short answer is no, I, was, I did, wasn't into acting as a kid kid. I was in dancing. I started taking ballet at age three and uh, was definitely into performing. I played piano also, and I liked to sing. And my dad and mother both brought me to a lot of shows. My dad brought me to musicals. Like I was definitely into consuming dance and musical theater and the arts for sure as a New York City kid. But I, and my junior high school, I went to a little junior high school uh, just on the edge of East Harlem. And we had a fabulous drama teacher. And so I did do some acting there, but in like, uh, the Vietnam War Memorial show that we <laughs> like the Black History Month show. Uh, I think there was one kind of abridged production of Grease that we did where I got to play Rizzo. That usually was just like scene study classes. So I remember doing a, a monologue, like Emily's final monologue in Our Town as a seventh grader, and you know, feeling like oh. I'm good at this. I like it. Everybody likes what I do. And so I, I auditioned for LaGuardia for the high, performing arts high school. And I got in. I, and I really wrestled with whether to go. And at the last minute, the night before, I decided to go to Bronx Science. Really? I, yeah. I don't know. I, sometimes I'm like, did I check it out? But I was, I, I was a real nerd. I really was academically engaged and precocious and back then in what would have been the like mid late 90s it the LaGuardia's academics weren't so hot I think they're much better now but um I really wanted to go somewhere where I could keep being a a nerd and I figured I could also act eventually and I'm grateful for it because I, I of course Bronx Science had no drama department none whatsoever which I had to remind the former principal of Brown Science who came to see Sidney Bruceen's window randomly recently and like asked to come see me backstage. And he's like, were you involved? And he's like, there was no drama program. There was nothing. There was not even like a cabaret during my time. The only thing there was is speech and debate. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. There was a speech and debate team. That's not performing. I mean, I guess it is performing. It's politics. There you go. Well, but here's the funny thing. In the speech section of it, there were a couple of categories that were like the dramatic interpretation. What? Wait, wait, wait. Explain <laughs> that. Like... It is the dorkiest thing. It is, and, and you know what's brilliant is that um, Billy Eichner was actually at Stuyvesant at the same time. And we competed against each other. And I've seen him a lot recently. And we have just like laughed our asses off about the fact that we used to do this bizarre form of performing where, uh, you know, I'd be doing a scene and there were really strict rules because it was a speech competition. So your scene partner, you had to stand side by side and you couldn't ever turn to each other or interact with each other or touch each other. 
you had to stand there with binders with your script, even though everybody was memorized, but you had to give the illusion of using your script and look straight out at a point on the wall. So I would be talking to my scene partner here against like over there. So we were side by side pretending to act with each other. It was so insane. And then there was also a category where you did, it must be the same. I should have asked them because the entire Bronx, High School Science Speech and Debate team came to see my show also recently, and I met all these adorable juniors and seniors. I should have asked them if it's still the same, because dramatic interpretation was the other category, and that was like solo performance, essentially, where you did a, a scene by yourself. So I, I remember the thing that I think I won, I won, but I mean, I was good. I went to state, I, state championships, national championships. And I did a scene from a couple different plays, but I would play like three characters. So I'd like have one focal point and one voice to be one character. This is so embarrassing. I can't believe I'm explaining this. I play like three <laughs> this different This is fascinating. Characters. This is why someday, someday I'll do like, you know, intel- search for intelligence. Lab. I'll do some crazy one woman play and people will be like, I'll, I'll be able to say that that started in high school in the Bronx Science Speech and Debate team. Yeah, no, it's crazy. So you, it was performance. But it wasn't like acting with a partner. That right. didn't happen until college. That's that in college I auditioned for the very first play that I could and I got cast and that was you know, that's all she wrote. Like who came up with this? That's what I wanna <laughs> well, know. I don't know. Like we're gonna we're gonna get some performing in here. But yeah. you can't look at each other. That's category no. number one. And number mm-hmm. two, you have to make it all up and do it yourself. Yep. <laughs> Like, that makes no sense. Oh, well, I guess, whatever. Okay, so then science, 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 yeah. Brock science, and put singing and piano, which is what you're accepted in LaGuardia for. And then you go to, and then you get accepted into, into Brown I University. I accepted into LaGuardia for acting, piano, and music. <laughs> and then didn't departments. do any of it. And if I had been allowed to audition for four, I would have auditioned and probably gotten in for dance too. The only category that I never would have gotten into was visual arts because I don't have that talent. But yeah, no, I was annoyingly precocious. But yes, I skipped it all, didn't do any of it, and then ended up at Brown and started doing theater. So you get to Brown. What do you think you're going to do at Brown then? Because you're doing the academic route at this point. Yeah. Well, I wasn't sure. I I really didn't know. One of the reasons I was so excited about going to Brown is that it felt like an easy place to figure it out. Um, I had started studying Chinese in high school because at Brown Science they offered Mandarin because, you know, some significant portion of the student body were Chinese American. And I just had, whatever, yes, nerd. I, I, it was like, the commute to Bronx Science took an hour on the train every day from where I lived, and I want and I had a crew of friends that I met up with and took the train with. And my junior year, my first period ended up being free. So unlike a lot of kids at schools where they would just sleep for an extra forty-five minutes, I wanted to take the train with my friends. So I got there and decided to try to fill it with a class and be and I want to do language and. The language that was offered at the time that was beginning level was Chinese. And that's how that started. <laughs> <laughs> I was studying Spanish. Wanted to say, I was like, oh, I could say French or Italian or something else that would make sense with Spanish. 
and the only language yeah was Chinese and the head of the department was like oh just go just go take a class just try it and I'm like no that makes no sense with Spanish but I took one class and I was hooked and I loved it so much that that was the one thing I knew I would do I didn't think I would major in it at Brown but I um I loved studying that language so much and I ended up being an East Asian studies major in college wait wait you got your degree in East Asian studies yes Yes, in Chinese, like Chinese literature and language being my focus. Wow. So there were, yeah, I know, it was great. I, I definitely only did that because I was able to do all the theater and take all the acting classes I wanted to without being a major. That was the nice thing about that, that college is that you could sort of, there were lots of programs that I was aware of that friends went to where you had to be a major in order to take the good classes, but that wasn't the case there, so... I got to do everything. Uh, I even took a year off after my sophomore year and lived in Hong Kong and traveled around China. I was like, yeah, it was like junior year abroad, but just a year off and traveling and doing nothing to do with theater. It was great. Wow. So you're going out, discovering yourself in China while discovering yeah. yourself at Brown and figure out what you really want to do yeah. while still majoring in East, East Asian studies. Yep. <laughs> and I, I love this, this through line in your life of like utter, and this, I mean that as a, I mean, this is an absolute compliment, but utter nerddom, like the epitome of, of nerding out over knowledge. And I, I respect that so much because it's one of those things where in life, as I get older, I feel like you, you will only slow down if you, if you let yourself stop learning. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I feel like now, like you're constantly just trying to be like, well, okay, well, I can do that too. And I'm going to do that too. And I'm going to learn about this because it might lead to that. And so then you get out of Brown and you've got this major in East Asian studies. And I mean, eventually you're, you know, you've got this major in East Asian studies, but you're in love with theater. So what then, and we're about the same age. So I think I remember in 07 when I was, my regional career was starting to exponentially grow. It was totally derailed by the writer's strike that happened at that point. So that mm -hmm. set me back on a completely different path. But where were you at this point in life? Well, I, you know, I actually, by senior year at Brown, I knew that I, I knew that acting was it for me. And I wanted to go to grad school because I figured I had taken some classes and gotten some experience, but it felt very much like part of the ethos of, I guess, the Brown undergrad education that all the, all the great actors that had come before me went on to grad, graduate school, got their MFAs. I just felt, I don't know why, or maybe it was also like the nerd in me that felt like I need to actually pursue more study. But, uh, and I also knew that I probably, I think on the back of my mind, I knew that I probably would want to be able to teach because even in college, I, you know, I did some volunteer teaching with some arts organizations in high school and I knew I really loved it. So I started at audition for graduate programs and because of the relationship that was forming with Trinity Repertory Company in Providence and Brown, I was essentially recruited to be in the first class of the new grad program that they were starting, the new MFA wow. program, which meant that I hung around Providence. I did some shows right out of college. I had a solo show that I'd written that got done at a small theater in Providence. Did I you did have to do all the parts, though? I did all the parts. Yes. <laughs> 
I did like a rock musical in Boston. And then I think I had a small part in two shows at Trinity Rep that season as I was getting ready to go to grad school. And then I went to grad school for three years. So I did that. And, you know, in making that decision, I, that was me kind of, yeah, I'm going to be an actor and that's what I'm going to do. So then, okay, you've got, you've got this path and you're embracing this and this is wonderful. And then you go performing and you go perform. And then in, in the mid knots, you meet, uh, who is man who is now your husband have two kids, yeah. I believe. Yeah. And then, then become at some point become an adjunct professor again at, at NYU Tisch. Yeah. Like, and with two kids, you're now auditioning and doing you're doing the mom life and the teaching life and the the broadway life which it on paper seem like they're all mutually exclusive it definitely it makes for a chaotic existence sometimes i will say that but uh in some ways we built it all slowly you know it it feels like in some ways when i got right out of graduate school i did mostly regional theater just because it paid better than the kind of off or off off Broadway shows that I mm-hmm. had access to. I had student loans to worry about, and it was like going to Arena Stage, which was one of my, my first, you know, big job away from Trinity Rep and Brown. Going to the Guthrie, going to the Shakespeare Theater in D.C., which actually the Shakespeare Theater became kind of a artistic home for me for a bunch of years. Michael Kahn really took me and my husband under his wing made us company members and I think I did a show like one show a year there for a while which was also an interesting thing because in the graduate program at Brown Trinity the focus had been new plays had been new work we worked with the MFA playwrights at Brown many of whom you would term kind of experimental or innovative or just they weren't writing traditional plays and that was the work that I kind of was trained with and so it was and we did plenty of Shakespeare in the classics but the stuff that I figured I would be doing out of school was not a bunch of Shakespeare and Ibsen and all the things that I, <laughs> Alope de Vega play. But I'd say during those years, it was, I'd kind of do two or three shows out of New York and then I would temp, do a temp job to be able to do some off-off-Broadway play in the city. And it was like that negotiation of being in and out. And then really that, and I was teach. I was always sort of trying to teach when I would. If I knew I was going to be in town and was off, I was lucky in that I had assisted the voice and speech teacher we had in grad school my final year, and so I had a little bit of teaching experience to kind of put forth on my resume, and just got lucky. People, friends of mine who were a little bit deeper into the teaching world, would occasionally throw me substitute opportunities and eventually like I got my first class I think the first proper course I taught was at Brooklyn College in the BFA program years ago and you just sort of build it like I just slowly started building my teaching career that way without being being really non-committal frankly because I was always and still do prioritize acting so it took a number of years to find the right situation where the university and the program and the department and the chair would be truly supportive of the fact that at a moment's notice I might have to go. Um, and there's a lot of, I had a lot of bad situations over the years at certain institutions and some really positive ones. And so I am very happy I landed at, at Tish and in the departments that I work in because it's been 
everybody's been really supportive and understanding because it is it's kind of thing where I can say I'll teach for the whole year and then actually I can only teach one semester. Actually, I'm going to need to sub out this six weeks. And so people have to really be willing to go along with that. But it was, it was that built slowly as well as the decision to stay in New York, which really was uh, when I found out I was pregnant with my daughter. I was doing a show in New York and it was kind of, the, it was at that point the first little moment of um, buzziness I guess I had ever had. It was at EST and I got a great review in the paper and I got a Drama Desk nomination and it was kind of a perfect part in this wonderful play called Think about actors in the blacklist. Um, and it, it was this little moment that felt like, oh, maybe some doors are opening. And in the same week as I found out about the Drama Desk and the Times Review rave, I found out I was pregnant. Mm. <laughs> and then I thought, well, I guess I should keep the job that I have lined up because I'm going to need the health insurance. You know, a lot of people would have been like, great, I'm here in New York. I'm going to start making moves. And I had plans to go do a play at Berkshire Theater Festival and then to go play Isabella in Measure for Measure at the Shakespeare Theater, which I did. And I did uh, up through almost my seven months seven months of pregnancy, seventh month of pregnancy. I played the virginal non-Shakespeare problem play. Um, oh my goodness. Yes, which was a wild experience. But after that, I had a, I, and then I went and had a baby. I had a baby and then things changed because there wasn't like gallivanting around doing regional theater. So in a way, like the life choices started to force the other choices and it became simpler. And Things, I don't know, things just started to fall into place in a nice way where I I actually got cast in a Claire Barron play called You Got Older that Annie Kaufman directed. That was my first time working with Annie. And so when you also trace back this, this Tony win started in some ways back in 2014 when we did this play together, you know, nine wow. years ago. And um, yeah, that just just started to change things and, and having having less ability or and less desire to go off and do shows and I sort of figured well maybe I'll work less as an actor but I didn't in the end I just figured out ways to make it work I had incredibly supportive parents who were willing to come babysit and, and theaters that were willing to make it work so I don't know we didn't have a second child right away like clear it wasn't until my daughter was like four that we even thought that we possibly could. Um, and in my son, my son is now four, but in his first year of life, I did three plays, with, three plays. Wow. You know, I did. And when, when I was pregnant with him, I did a bunch of TV and film when I wasn't on stage, you know, and it, I don't know. He just, I just figured out a way to make it work. I, I remember when I was pregnant with my daughter initially being sort of confronting some, what I felt was like old fashioned reactionary attitudes, some older actors slash theater people that sort of seemed to suggest, well, like you start having kids, it's going to be really hard to keep your career. Hmm. And I, I don't know, I'm stubborn and I'm persistent in some ways having a kid change everything for the better for me and uh yeah and then having two turned out to be a good idea too <laughs> we're going to take a short break stay tuned for more of the episode 
<laughs> so your daughter now, if I'm doing math right, is probably about eight and a half, nine. Right? Nine, yeah, she's nine. Yeah. So, so our my older son's the same age. Um, do th- do they? Does she does she realize what mommy just won? Does she realize what mo- what ha- what's happening with mommy? She does. It's amazing because I hadn't done a play since uh, the last play I did before Sydney Brewstein was uh, at the Atlantic and got ended early with COVID. Right? It was one of the plays that was running and we were almost done with our run, but it, it was running in February and March of 2020. And she was only what six then. And so mm. understood, had a newly six and had a very different relationship to it. She liked coming to the theater. I have pictures of her in every dressing room on every set of anything I'd ever done. And she loved it, but she didn't quite understand it in the same way. And coming back with a three year break, and having her really be part of this process has been amazing. She's been, she was just excited when we were at BAM. She would come and <laughs> hang out and watch the warm up. And she watched the show. She saw it, which was definitely a little young for the subject matter. But yeah, she came. Yeah. But she, and then she, um, she was, she came to Broadway and hung out in my dressing room all the time. She totally got all the hoopla about the Tony. She's so excited. She has announced many times that she is going to be she's going to win a tony someday and she's going to play mavis the next time it comes back to broadway yeah she knows all my lines she can me pretend to be oscar and do the scene with her sometimes it's very cute (laughs) (laughs) that's so cool my 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 kids now they came to me the other day they're like daddy are you famous and i was like no why like because we put your name in the google and you're there You're famous, aren't you? It's like, n- no, not how you think I am. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of like, God, how do you even know about this concept and why are you obsessed with it? Because I never have been, so let me try to dispel <laughs> this. I know. Oh, it's yeah. so it's so interesting to me, and I love I love that that you're taking your kids uh, into that realm because I think it's so important just to see to see how hard it is and to see like yeah. you can work hard and you know i assume like she's been there for rehearsals and there's times when she's got to sit there quietly with a coloring book or something right totally. and, and then to see it come together and to see this recognition it's got to be so rewarding as a as a parent too not only as you know just like a, a regular parent but also as like a parent of a of a working uh, a working mother in an industry that's one of the hardest to exist in in general you know what i mean yeah yeah no it's been really it's been really really nice and it's been um yeah i've been really grateful to be able to just share it with her and have her kind of understand it's really different with the four-year-old i don't know how old your youngest is but the four-year-old the sweetest little boy and he doesn't really understand and so the main relationship he has to it is that it's the thing that takes mama away and i can never do bedtime you know yeah so it's she, you know, I, I've been celebrating how much she can appreciate it, but it also just does tug on the heartstrings a bit. Um, but now I'm for the foreseeable future to be bedtime all the time. <laughs> well, your character of Mavis is is a kind of a racist bigot, not kind of is, yeah. and um, so I guess I was going to ask like sort of how how you approach something that seems to be so different from who you are as a as a regular person but now i'm very curious uh you said that your daughter's seen it 
and obviously they absorb as children they absorb everything they see and are, are have, were you able to sit down with her have you had that conversation of like these lines aren't real this person isn't real i'm totally. saying things to, to teach a lesson or whatever it is like how did you approach that totally no we talked about it a lot i mean i'm, I'm lucky in that she goes to this pretty magical little school where they um, are very proactive about talking about everything to do with race and social justice and prejudice. And I feel like she already had a really good foundation for that. Um, but I definitely had to talk to her a lot about the fact that my character says, has some really like wrong beliefs and says a lot of flawed and problematic and hurtful things. Um, it's funny, though, her main preoccupation was the fact that I smoke a cigarette in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Not the fact that I say, like, anti-Semitic things, you know, and she's also, like, very um, been sort of waking up and enjoying being Jewish, you know, and so that that didn't seem to be a hiccup at all for her or the fact that, you know, I explained that my character had a very a wrong way of thinking about race and didn't think that her white sister should be with a black man. And, you know, she, she got all that and didn't seem to be phased by it, but watching mommy smoke, even though I explained it was a fake herbal cigarette was problematic. Also just to, to, you know, to fully out myself here in my uh, (laughs) failure as a mother, I completely forgot to uh, brief her or prepare her for the whole sex worker suicide aspect of the play. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. I don't know how that just completely escaped me, but I think I was so worried about talking to her about the things my character was doing, right? About the racism and the anti-Semitism and all of the homophobia, but that I just forgot to mention the fact that the younger sister was a prostitute and killed herself in the play. So that was the main topic of discussion after she saw it, which she sort of took in stride and was surprisingly mature about. How do, how do you explain sex work to an eight-year-old? I didn't really explain sex work. I didn't really explain it. No, I didn't explain it. Okay, that. okay, okay. okay. Su- suicide is strangely like an easier concept to explain, not to get too dark about it, but like somehow that was, I found as a parent, easier to just sort of talk about that rather than, because <laughs> my my yeah my older one now well just matter of fact like it's just like roses are red and violets are blue like i know how sex works now daddy I'm like okay um Whoa. like like the anatomy of what happens yeah the, right. the mechanics of it wow he understands because they learned about it in science that's what he says okay all right why people do it we haven't touched on yet right. <laughs> but how it works he's like meh I don't know why people want to do it. That's cool. We'll find whatever. Right. Um, so that's a whole, that's a separate conversation. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and you're right. And in my younger one, my kids are 20 months apart. So my younger one's about wow. to be uh, a seven in, in two weeks, actually. And he's, he's strangely, like in a healthy way, asks a lot of question about death. Not, uh-huh. in, not in a morbid way, but he's very much, he's like, so... So one day, like, you're going to be gone, right? And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah I'll, be, yeah, I'll be gone. Or like that, the animal, like like those bugs, when you squish them, they're, they're dead. They don't come back? Like, no, they definitely do not come back. Like, he's, yeah. yes? Yeah. Good questions. So, yeah, I totally understand how suicide death is an easier 
binary concept to understand. Yeah, yeah so, absolutely. I, get that. I totally get that. Um, real, real quick too. I just want to. I want to ask because I actually don't know this. Was the original intent to to stay off Broadway? Was the Broadway one run ever expected? No, it wasn't. Um, it's funny. A lot of people when when it got announced, and a lot of friends of mine knew that, being like, "Oh my god!" Like, I guess we're just in this. We're conditioned to assume that everything has Broadway aspirations, but truly, it did not. It was actually very specifically chosen to fit into Oscar and Rachel's schedules, to fit into the band season, to do that limited run. It felt like BAM was the right home for it without the pressures of doing a commercial production. It's funny that the play actually almost got done on Broadway at the roundabout once or twice over the years. I was part of a production that the same director, Annie Kaufman, directed in Chicago at the Goodman in 2016. And it was such a success that there was interest in New York and she had been trying to drive a production to New York for a while. And we did a reading at the roundabout with Ben Stiller in the lead, actually. (laughs) And we were going to do it. He was excited about it and we were going to do it. And then as things happened, schedules changed. And I think something that he was, this TV series he was directing changed the timeline and then it didn't fit in with Annie's schedule. And that was probably like in 2017 or 2018. And then it all fell apart. And I think she has been trying to get it back ever since. And sometime, this is, I just learned this recently at BAM, sometime during the pandemic, BAM said, we're ready to do it when we come back. And I think Annie actually went to Ben initially because he had been attached to it. And he wasn't free, even though he had loved it and he suggested Oscar Isaac hmm. he was friends with Oscar he's like have you Oscar would be perfect he's like in some ways he's like he'd be better he's perfect for this so then it all started to happen but no when once Oscar was in place and I think I did a reading of Oscar and Rachel before it was programmed at BAM but when they were thinking about it and it was never going to be more than that and that was kind of wonderful and in some ways what that meant is that we just made it for BAM, which means that nobody was worried about it being commercial or even palatable or, 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 you know, easy. It's not an easy play. It's really thorny and complicated and, and um, chaotic. And in some ways we were just fully able to just be in the full experience of the play. It was three hours. Like nobody, nobody batted an eyelash, you know, BAM, they're used to going and sitting through seven hour long plays. Like, so it just, in some ways, it was the perfect way to create something. And it wasn't until we, I think in our last week of performances at BAM, both Rachel and Oscar, their other projects had either gotten moved or fallen apart, and suddenly they were free. And I think just that sort of energy of, oh, no, this shouldn't be ending. It's so good. And people just started, I think, in the last couple of weeks, reaching out and making calls and it it really was very last minute. So we closed the show thinking that it was done. Bam. I mean, they threw out the set, like it was done. And I went on vacation with my family and five days after we closed, I got a call that we might be moving to Broadway and so many things had to line up. I know that a theater had to become free unexpectedly. Jeremy O'Hara had kind of, from Italy on a writer's retreat, called all his people and gotten them to come our last week of performances and got everyone fired up. And 
they had somehow raised the money. I mean, it's really sort of a perfectly kind of romantic, amazing story of how that happened because it was never the intention and it was a kind of glorious surprise and I think a pretty historic turnaround time for how quickly it all happened. That's so insane. I thought that they, yeah. they knew, I thought there mm-hmm. was probably something like in the works and off-Broadway, like BAM was just the precursor, but like they threw out the set even, like that's oh, how definitive yeah. it was. No, it was, de- we were done. We wow. were done. We had, yeah, the last week there was like murmuring about, oh, well, we should, maybe we'll take it to Broadway. Uh, or, you know, I think some theaters from London had come and were quite interested in bringing, so let me be clear, the costumes, like it's not, not everything had been thrown out, but the set itself, which was all these like steel beams and, the, you know, this massive structure, there was nowhere to put all that. So, right. no, it, it was, it was, we thought it was done. That's, oh, that's so cool. I saw it at BAM because yeah. BAM, BAM's, only a couple blocks from my house. I live there in Brooklyn. And so, uh, yeah, I saw, I saw it at BAM and, and just loved it. Uh, it's such a beautiful, it was a beautiful production in a beautiful house. And it just, you're right, yeah. it just worked. It was built specifically for that space and yeah. that audience. And to see it transfer yeah. over was, was great. I think it opened probably, I think it was like two or three days before the Tony eligibility cutoff. Like it was it, 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 under it, it the It was wire. the day. We, we had our first preview, I think, April 25th and we had a, a we had like four three or four previews before opening and tony cut off yeah it was crazy. Three or four? wow okay that's insane yeah well cool and well, obviously long, it was the same but a lot we had to change a lot and also just being in that different space was a huge adjustment for all of us yeah yeah, yeah. oh that's so cool well we're gonna take a short break stay tuned for more of the episode I feel like I could talk to you forever, but hey, obviously no. we need to wrap up here uh, at some point. So I'm going to, I have three questions. I ask everybody to end the episodes. The first one oh, just great. very simply is just what motivates you. Uh, as an actor. Sure. As a person, it's, it's open okay. to interpretation. So take it as you will. Well, I think it is an actor. Um, uh, what motivates me, uh, of course, I'm thinking about theater specifically because it was a time back on stage in three years. And I had this experience one of our last nights of just watching Oscar in one of his big, incredible, you know, speeches that he was giving, experiencing the audience with him and all of that kind of alive energy and community. And I just, that, that experience, that sort of breathing together, sharing with a thousand strangers, that having the, the, the shift in molecules that can happen in those moments that motivates me mm. experiencing that and being part of that and like driving that and and bestowing that all of it God. oh i love that i said that it's so often in the pandemic it's like i miss yeah. the shared emotional journey you take with a room full of strangers totally it, it's, totally. it's cathartic it's great yeah all is. right what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path okay I was definitely told by several different people that it might take some time and, you know, there are many different paths to a career. And I will say I took that in and I listened to it. So I would, um, I would just remind my younger self to, 
to not be offended by the suggestion that I wasn't going to be a star at 27. And that uh, doing meaningful work and feeling proud of the community you're building and looking, I mean, the thing is, the irony here, right, is that the Tony, it's, it's sensational. It's such an honor. It's so incredible. And I'm so happy about it. But I'm really also happy to be able to look back and name so many shows and so many experiences that I've been so proud of and the people I've gotten to work with and the, the work itself. And so that is like, that's the thing to cling to. That's what it's about. It's not about like, yes, being 45 and winning a Tony is amazing. It's amazing. But I, I'm just as proud of so many other things that have happened along the way that weren't like on the radar, you know? Hmm. That's beautiful. Okay, last question. Hardest one. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? <laughs> oh my God. That's impossible. Um, God, what would it be? Um, I'm just going to go out on a crazy limb and say some musical that I love to listen to because you'd have to like the music. So let's say Carousel. <laughs> it's a lie I'd probably get so sick of it but I love the music in that it came to mind it was a formative experience seeing that as a little girl so there you go alright so where can we find you online do you do the social media game yeah I have an Instagram account <laughs> it's just my name I think she checks yeah she, che she looks down and checks <laughs> Right? Yeah, I'm online. I'm on Instagram. Okay. The best way. Well, now because you have Instagram, you can get on Threads. Right? I know so I haven't can... done that yet. I guess I should you get on Threads. Yeah, I, uh, I just joined Threads. It's actually kind of kind of nice. Is it, it really okay. is. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, uh, Patreon. Um, leave a rating, leave a review wherever you're listening. Uh, music by Jukebox the Ghost and Miriam. Thank you so much. I've had so much fun chatting with you. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Aww. Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot -E 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 org because only together we rise.